Welcome to BSD Talk number 234. It's Monday, November 11, 2013. What follows is the first of the interviews that I did from BBSDCon in Virginia, so here it is. We're here once again with Henning Brower, and thanks for taking time out of the conference to talk to me here at VBSDCon in Virginia, in the greater DC area. You're here to give a talk at this conference, but I also wanted to sit down with you and just get a little more detail specifically on what you've been working on in OpenBSD. Yep, hello. One of my uh, few appearances in the US, I'm glad I'm here. Um, recent, recent work of mine, this is actually interesting times for me. Um, I've been working on, on two very big changes for a long time in parallel, which was very challenging Working on large, working on large sub-projects that that don't you know, take a long time and don't get into the tree is always pretty hard because you have to keep your changes in sync with what's happening in the tree, and that tends to be a lot of work. So working on these in parallel was not clever. So what I'm talking about one is basically a rewrite of the of the way we do checksums in the TCP/IP stack. I'll detail that in a little bit. And the other bit is the new queuing subsystem. So checksums. Um, I started, I actually forgot what was the starting point. <laughs> I know that I started working on this in when we had the hackathon in Iceland. That was 2010, I think. Um, there's, when we talk about checksums here, there's two different ones that we care about. One is the IP checksum that only exists in IPv4. And the other are the protocol checksums, like TCP and UDP. And uh, modern network cards can offload that checksum calculation to the card, so you don't have to do it in software anymore. And that, that's if the driver and the card that's right. can do it. That's right. The IP checksum is really, really easy and simple, because it only covers the IP header, no payload. In IPv4, as said, v6 doesn't have this at all. In IPv4, you have to basically recalculate the checksum on each and every router anyway, because the TTL field is part of the checksum, and every router has to decrement it, right? Since it only covers the header, and you're touching the header anyway, it's almost guaranteed to be in cache, and the math for the checksum is actually dirt cheap. So that, performance-wise, is completely irrelevant. You can't even measure it. There is no benefit from offloading that either. Um, we do it because it's very easy to do, but no measurable benefit. However, the protocol checksums cover the entire payload, and on machines where you only forward packets, uh, you don't have the payload in cache at all. And uh, touching memory is expensive, very expensive. As long as we're looking at pure routers, you don't even have to touch the protocol checksums because they do not cover the bits in the header that typically change on a router. However, when you're rewriting addresses as a net or redirect, you obviously have to. And that's where things tend to get expensive, as I said, because of 
having to read the entire payload. We already had infrastructure to offload the protocol checks and calculation to the cards. However, it wasn't used in a very efficient way. There were many, many, many places in the stack that fiddled with the checksum, and PF was updating the checksums on the fly. That's true for both the IP checksum and the protocol checksums. For the IP checksum, this was completely moot, since right after the outgoing PF call, the checksum was recalculated anyway. So fixing that was really easy, just delete the entire IP checksum handling code in PF. Wait a second, there's the bridge. The bridge is different, and the bridge doesn't really have a reason to recalculate the checksum. So to attack this, I fixed the bridge to behave like a regular output path, to just recalculate the checksum if needed. That leaves the protocol checksums, and that was actually much harder. What I moved us to is a model where we basically work under the assumption that we have checksum offloading on each and every output path. And very late, when we figure out this output path for some reason does not have any offloading capabilities, we fall back to the software implementation. Since the checksum handling was all over the stack, in many, many, many different places, this was challenging. <laughs> it was a lot of work, and that's also one of the reasons why I ended up with these two big divs in parallel, because there was a bug that didn't make it work at all, and I couldn't find it. It took about a year until I found it until I finally could, could continue on that. So I ended up working on the, on the queuing subsystem. Um, we're talking about bandwidth shaping mostly here. There's also prioritization. It doesn't really need that many changes to the queuing. It does need changes, but they're not all that big. Prioritization really just reorders packets. That's all it does. Um, you're processing some high-priority packets before you're processing the lower-priority packets. So how do we do this? Really simple. Instead of having one queue, we're talking about the output queues um, that, sit, that sit on the, on the cards or right before the cards. So it depends a bit on how you want to see it. And the IP input queue, this is one central per protocol. V6 is a separate one. Um, all I did, basically, was to make that that struct, struct ifnet, that holds these queues, used to hold one queue head, and I just made this an array of eight. So really simple, you somehow prioritize, prioritize um, the most common method being pf, and then you put this into the right queue in that array, and the array is processed in order. So highest priority first, and then that was very simple, and uh, I committed this, I think, two years ago or so, or one year ago, quite a long time ago. Just works, no buttons, can't turn it off. <laughs> we uh, prioritize a couple of things by default that are important. Um, for example, CARP announcements. Uh, you do not want to lose CARP announcements under heavy load because then the slave thinks the master is gone and becomes master. And the worst possible scenario in failover, failover scenarios always is that both nodes think they are master. Um, so that's prioritized by, by default now. Same thing goes for spanning tree PPUs. That's basically the same thing for, for that failover mechanism. The bandwidth shaping part was much more involved. So previously, we were using AltQ, uh, which is a research project, or used to be a research project, uh, mostly by Kenjiro Cho, who wrote his thesis on that. 
more than 10 years ago, and uh, who wrote Alt-Q. And back then, there was not a, not a very good understanding about bandwidth shaping and these queuing methods. The, the purpose was to understand the different scheduling mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So it was very flexible, everything was pluggable, but at the same time, this isn't exactly the, the highest performance way of implementing this. So just by enabling all queue, you lose about 10% of performance, which is something, or it was even more, I think 15, which is, to me, not acceptable. <laughs> so, um, and the, it, it's very complicated. We're talking about 12,000 lines of code, roughly. Um, the core itself is 7,000 lines, and the rest is hooks into, into the rest of the stack. So these days, there is a good understanding, and almost the entire industry uses uh, something HFSC-derived. Uh, we had support for that as well. It's hierarchical fair scheduling? Service course. Yeah, there's, okay. Um, I remember what that was. We had this on our queue. Um, actually, initially, Kenjiro and I merged our queue into PF in 2003, um, which basically made PF the classifier and used PF to set up the queues. HFSC came a year later, and we really screwed up the syntax. We really is me there. <laughs> it was basically ununderstandable. Nobody got it and nobody was using it. So everybody was using this simpler mechanism called CBQ, uh, class-based queuing. But CBQ can be entirely be expressed in HFSC, and HFSC is the better, better algorithm. So the idea was keep HFSC but make it usable, drop CBQ, but as said, can be entirely expressed in, in HFSC, and uh, remove the, the, the entire glue, basically the framework around it, because we don't need the, the, the pluggable scheduler thing, because the research... Pick the best one, in your opinion. The research time it. basically yeah. is over. Hmm. It's well understood. So and this is what I did. Um, use HFSC, rewrite the entire glue, and the entire subsystem is three, three and a half thousand lines of code, instead of roughly 12. Hmm. So that's, that's the achievement. I just committed this. Um, that will be in 5.6, no, 5.5. .5. And how about the performance of this compared to what you had in the past? Um, there still is a bit of overhead, but we exactly know where it is now. Um, the scheduling mechanisms need need very accurate time stamping on the packets to, to measure the bandwidth. And uh, getting accurate time stamps is not exactly cheap. So that's where the performance issue is. Does Most it vary by it. architecture? <laughs> it's even worse. It varies by the exact hardware in your system. Mm -hmm. so, um, if you're on a system, if you're talking AMD64 slash i386 here, if you're on a system that only has the plain old 80... I keep forgetting the, the chip number, but the plain old clock chip, um, it's extremely slow because that's an ISA device. Um, the more modern the machine is, the better your chance that you have a pretty fast time source or clock source. You've dropped CBQ, but does it mean that your PF rules will need to be rewritten for yes. this new queuing? Yes. Um, if you actually use queuing, you will have to rewrite, yes. Um, the new syntax, however, is so much easier. Like You show to somebody who speaks English and he understands what's going on, mm -hmm. at least with a basic understanding of networking, not even queuing, but with a basic understanding of networking, he understands it. That's the goal. No, I think that's true. <laughs> you're, you're doing your part to help sell books yeah. on PF. 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> you gotta write yes. new versions of them for the That's new true. syntax. One of the one of the first, actually not first, but one of the comments I got after committing this was from Michael Lucas, basically saying, "Oh, you idiot! You just invalidated an entire chapter." <laughs> so my reply was obvious. I'm just paving the road for the third edition. Right. <laughs> right. Now, the work that you've been doing is this really just you or do you have a lot of other people on the OpenBSD team that are working with you on this? It's obviously not just me. No. Um, there's other developers who help. Um, the The amount of, of involvement of other developers um, is, is uh, not, not something it, it's, it depends on what I'm doing. For checksumming, I got much more help than for the queuing stuff because the queuing stuff is kind of complicated and it's hard to split this. The checksumming is extremely hard to understand because it's everywhere, but it's it's conceptually easier, so more people understand what's going on. Um, the w one person to be named here is Christian Weisberger, um, Natty. Um, the uh, the way we did checksums before and and did the on-the-fly updating in PF as a consequence had a nasty bug on some kinds of offloading hardware. So basically what happened before is very high up in the stack, before PF sees it or anything, you calculate a pseudo-header checksum that just covers a couple of fields. Then this travels down, down, down all the way, and then the checksum is updated. The checksum is updated once you know the addresses. The checksum again is updated much later when you have the payload. Many cards that do offloading do what I call full offloading. They don't care what the checksum field is. They just compute the entire thing, problem solved. And unfortunately, there's another kind of hardware that requires that pseudo-header checksum to be there. And, well, <laughs> these are foremost Intel Gigabit, Broadcom Gigabit. Very so popular. We're basically talking 90% mm -hmm. of the server market. So that's where you tend to care about performance. So they want the few percent that the offloading gives you, right? So this was very unfortunate. The bug is when PF sees such a packet with, uh, with just the pseudo-header checksum and we are rewriting something, we'll update the checksum. Even if the checksum, the pseudo-header, when we're changing something, the pseudo-header checksum doesn't even cover. So then, of course, it's wrong. PF had no way to tell whether the packet had a partial checksum, the pseudo-header checksum, or a full one. So unsolvable. Now things are really, really easy. The upper parts of the stack don't care about checksums at all anymore. We don't pre-compute anything. This is after the last release. This, The last bits I just did last week in Berlin at the hackathon. Now the entire checksum calculation is in one spot, pretty way down, late, and all the, all the upper layers have to do is set a flag, hey, this needs a checksum. And well, it's this needs a UDP checksum, this needs a TCP checksum, or this needs ICMP checksum. For ICMP, there is no offloading on any hardware I know. Um, we still operate under the same model. Should there ever be any card that does offloading, it's easy for us to add. I also think the benefit is zero, but yeah, having things working the same way just makes sense, right? ICMP is going to be one percent of your, if at all. Yeah, yeah. And the packets yeah. tend to be tiny, yeah. so the checksum is cheap. ICMP has some interesting interesting corner cases though, especially ICMP error messages. ICMP errors usually refer to a UDP or TCP packet. 
and for the stacks to be able to match the returned ICMP error to the TCP connection or the UDP uh, socket, these ICMP error messages quote a part of the original packet they refer to. So most of the time that is truncated. So there's no way to verify the checksum inside. Um, but this also means that when you're doing NAT, you don't just have to rewrite the addresses on the packet itself, but you have to look inside and rewrite the addresses of the quoted packet. Now, if it is a tiny packet, the checksum is verifiable. Nothing does. There's one thing that we found that looks at the quoted packet, and if it's, if it's a complete one, looks at the checksum. That's scapy. That's a little tool that we use to generate weird packets and throw it PF and mm. see what it's doing. It's the only thing. Hmm. So what we did for now is just ignore the quoted packet. I mean, as I said, most of the time it's unverifiable anyway and nothing in the world cares. And you mentioned the, the hackathon in Berlin. Yeah. Was your work there primarily this? Um, I primarily... It's twofold. One, I moved the last bits of the upper upper layers of the stack caring about the checksum. This was not all that much. I expected this to be quite a bit of work, but it turned out it was... Well, I basically had this done in, what, half an hour or an hour? And I spent another one and a half days verifying that it actually worked because I couldn't believe it. <laughs> turned out it was that easy after all the legwork was done. The rest of the time I spent with finding and fixing corner cases where the new checksum the way of dealing with checksums didn't work correctly. But we're talking very weird cases. Um, there was a, a remarkable commit. It was a two-line diff, or touching one line, I think. And Alexander Bloom and myself were sitting over this together for one and a half day to understand it. With checksumming stuff. It, it should be so simple, but it wasn't. Hmm. Now it pretty much is just have to be careful that whenever you're touching something that's covered by the checksum to set the flag saying this needs to be rechecksumed. How long does it take for you to take this kind of work and put it into production where you work? I guess how daring are you with current? That, that really depends on what I'm doing. On most machines, almost all servers, I run a release. This is not because I don't trust the current code base. It's a really, really simple reason. I need a stable point in time to have matching packages. On my workstation and my laptops, I run current all the time. Um, I might not update it every day or every week. Uh, my, my, the laptops I travel with are a good example because I really only use them when I travel. So I update them when I'm somewhere and have the time or when I'm at the hackathon and need real current on them. Most of the time I don't even hack on those laptops itself. Um, in the company, there's, there are very few machines running current. The ones that are kind of easy are network device style machines like firewalls because they don't really need packages. Most of the time I'm not putting the new features on those quickly well, why not? I could, sometimes do, but most of the time it's separate. Like one is company work and one is open VST hacking. 
It's not that I don't trust my code, not at all. Like I have no problems throwing my stuff on there immediately. For example, um, there's one exception now. On the last release, um, we still had checksum offloading disabled to, to the Intel Gigabit and the Broadcom Gigabit because we didn't quite trust it yet. Like We wanted it to match, mature a bit. However, I was sure enough, so in my stable tree, I just enabled it and threw it on a couple of hundred machines. And so far, I haven't seen it misbehaving, which in turn means that we had an easier time enabling that in the tree now, because I already implicitly tested this on many, many, many machines. However, I basically have no Broadcom, so that only covered the Intel side. I was thinking a, a few years ago, you made some major optimizations to PF yep. that made it much faster. Yep. But some of the other BSD projects that incorporate PF hadn't moved to that major version yet. I think it's all of them. Yeah, and now you're getting a whole nother set of optimizations. Yep. Are you getting much call from these other projects to help maybe leapfrog forward to some of this newer stuff? Not really. Um, their problem seems, well, I don't really know about the NetBSD site. Um, they're so busy repeating all our mistakes in their own little PF clone, <laughs> even though we told them it's a bad idea, but whatever. Their call, their time. Um, so I don't know what's going on with PF and NetBSD. No idea. Um, FreeBSD is stuck with a version from 2008 or 2009, which is basically just before the changes became visible. Um, led to syntax changes. And yes, a syntax change is always annoying for administrators, yes. But the impact is so much overrated because for 99% of the setups, it's a, it's a you know, two-minute job. You, for most, you could do a set job. Mm -hmm. Like, it's that simple. The, the talk that's going on in FreeBSD is that for, for one of the next major releases, they want to do it, but apparently they have nobody who's actually doing it. So it's a it's a somebody has to do it problem. Uh, I said repeatedly, I'm happy to help. And I'll repeat this, I'm happy to help. So if somebody does it, runs into issues, problems, questions, just approach me, I'll do what I can. Um, people keep thinking it's hard to update because PF now is much more integrated with the network stack. Um, that's that's a big, big part of the performance improvements comes from the better integration. However, we always fall back to to the old, I'm not really saying old, to the traditional code paths. And we just use the optimization in cases where where everything is in order. For example, if, if we have a packet that's, you know, the regular case is packet comes in on one network interface, gets forwarded, maybe netted, and sent out to another. As soon as we get into tunnels or IPsec or whatever, things are different and we cannot use these optimizations. So we are using the old code path there. It's not even old, traditional, regular, how we want to call it, uh, call it. First packet of each connection has to go through the traditional code paths. Only after then we have all the relations set up and can skip lookups and stuff like that. And on the other, other operating systems who, does, who do not want to change their stack for this, well, just leave the hooks empty. And we are using the other code path. Easy enough. So nobody should be worried that it's too hard to do this. Hmm. And you think about you know, some of the other OpenBSD generated projects like you know, OpenSSH where there's a 
affiliated project, I don't know if that's the right word, you know, portable OpenSSH. And there's sort of these portable versions, but I guess with PF, because it's so integrated, you really can't create sort of a portable version. No, we're really version. talking two completely different things yeah. here. OpenSSH yeah. is userland, yeah. uh, daemon, and set of programs, yeah. while PF is an integral part of the kernel. Mm -hmm. And of course, the something working in userland, mostly mostly on POSIX ground, mm -hmm. is much easier to port something deep in the kernel where you don't have that that standard APIs. Still, it's not it's not impossible. I mean, Apple managed to integrate PF, Q and X integrates PF, and that's not even a Unix-like system. Well, I basically know nothing about Q and X, so don't take my word for it. But they managed to integrate it, and how hard can it be? <laughs> for me, <laughs> impossible. <laughs> no, well, for somebody yeah. somebody familiar with that <laughs> operating system, it shouldn't be too hard. Yeah. I mean, PF obviously needs something to do its memory management, and that is different in each and every every operating system. But it's familiar enough that that adjusting isn't too hard. Uh, FreeBSDs is completely different than OpenBSDs, and yet the PF has been ported, and it, it, the, the difference isn't all that big. It's not like they had to rewrite half of it. Um, the the ways to to hook into the network stack are a little bit different, but it's all not hmm. not that different. So now that you've crossed these items off your list, do you have anything else in your sites for PF to work on next? Uh, I need some time to recover. <laughs> Working on these two in parallel was really a nightmare. It was mm -hmm. really a nightmare. Um, there's, there's work on top of what hit the tree. Um, for example, we still have all Q in. Um, I'm never going to do this again because this just made the nightmare even worse. Uh, for the next release, we'll have AltQ and the new queuing subsystem to give people time to migrate. I know how much sysadmins love this. Um, one, because I'm getting the feedback. Two, because I'm one myself. <laughs> Eat your own dog food. <laughs> um, however, it's it doesn't pay out. It's making things so much more an annoying isn't even strong enough. Um, Never again, never again. Not for such something that big. Uh, queuing, I think it's not even worth it for queuing because it's not all that common. So it's not like each and every firewall would be affected. Uh, in most scenarios, well, this is a bit different in, in North America than in Europe, but especially in Europe, um, bandwidth usually is not your concern anymore because it's just available in there. So bandwidth shaping isn't that interesting anymore. What you want is priority queuing. So if you're getting loads of traffic, you still want to prioritize the, the traffic you think is important. Um, that's the easier bit. As I said, it's always on. You cannot turn it off. Trivial to use. All you do in PF is you match something and say prior number between mm -hmm. 0 and 7. That's it. I just wish everything wasn't being pushed over port 80 HTTP. You know, like with that's the problem. Yes, that kind of queuing. You know, it just seems like more and more everybody's just shifting everything over to that one protocol, which has always been yep. difficult for us. Well, this could, well, can be. If you're if you're getting that HTTP traffic through RelayD, RelayD can tag traffic, so you should be able to queue this based on some kind of content headers, whatever. Mm. Um, don't take my word for it whether it already works. I think it should, and if it doesn't, it's rather trivial to do. 
now Reich should be here. <laughs> Reich is here yes, at the conference, but not in the room. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's one of the two persons who started Real ID under a different name. Yeah, the host aid. Host, oh, it uh, <laughs> called? First it was called host... No, sorry. His initial prototype actually was called Real ID. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pierre-Yves Richard Pierre, um, showed up with a different implementation. I think it was called SLBD, Server Load Balancing Daemon. Um, initially, they, the PF had this load balancing abilities for a long time. And we kept saying all we need in userland is something that checks the availability of the backend hosts, and if one goes, uh, take it out of the redirection table. And that's what this SLBD did. And that's what the first version of Reich's ID did. When it hit the tree, I think the first name was Host 8D. Yeah. yeah. It was supposed to be Host State D, but for some reason it ended up at Host 8D. And at some point we were like, wait a second, this is wrong. Host 8 Demon? Why, why does a host eat demons? That doesn't make <laughs> sense, right? So then it was Host State D. Mm -hmm. And the more, the more was implemented in it, like layer seven, uh, layer seven handling. Um, don't leave the, not leaving the traffic in the kernel, but taking it out and you know, he did SSL offloading and stuff like that. So host state D was clearly not an appropriate name for it. And hey, the name real ID is back and I think it's generic enough. Mm -hmm. So that works, yes. I guess we'll, we'll hear a little bit about that maybe tomorrow. Yeah, okay. actually. We, we just finished the slides, so mm -hmm. <laughs> it's very new. Um, or, well, it's still in my mind. Um, reality is just a small part of the talk tomorrow, mm -hmm. but yes, it's it's mentioned. We glance over it. Right. Good. Well, I guess that's it. We can get back to the conference and yeah. see how it's going. So thanks again for taking some time. Thank you. If you'd like to leave comments on the website or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email and complain about the fact that I'm using my laptop's built-in microphone, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T-G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 234.